Hebrews 6.1, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. That's King James. The principles, plural, of the doctrine, singular. So the doctrine of Christ has several principles. And the word principle there means foundation or key or beginning parts. And what I found interesting as I've studied this and looked at it, and I teach on it every couple years, as, as well I should if these are the principles of the doctrine, one of the things that's not in there is soul winning, which is interesting. You think that would be in there. And I don't have an explanation for it, but there's a lot of things that are not in there that we found to be critical. But nevertheless, the Holy Spirit inspired the author of Hebrews to write this. So these are principles of the doctrine of Christ, and we should know them, embrace them, and be good at them. I would also add, if there's six and we start to divorce our faith from some of these, how many can we divorce our faith from, as in we reject, and not have a foundation? I would say if there's only six, we ought to be really good at these six and be really committed and invested in these six. But as we've covered these, we've looked at a few of them, and I would say a lot of American churches don't even ascribe to two or three of them. So at the very least, they're tilting. So let's keep reading. Let us go on again into perfection. That is, we don't want to lay this foundation, but until we lay the foundation, we cannot be perfected. So think about that. Any church... Any Christian that doesn't understand these six principles will not be able to go on to maturation. The word perfection is King James. The better term is maturation, maturity, fulfillment. Let's lay the foundation. Then we can go on to maturity. But he says, I don't want to lay the foundation again, but he does because he's having mercy on the Hebrew believers. Let us go on again to perfection, not laying again the foundation. So again, this tells us that these six principles are foundational. The foundation of repentance from dead works. Of course, we're dealing with the maturation of Christians, which may be why soul winning is not involved. We're dealing with how we get Christians mature. So when talking about Christian maturity, one of the first thing we do is we get you out of dead works. Dead works include sin, sinful things, but it's not just limited to sinful things. Sometimes dead works are good works, but no faith. Good works, but no joy. It doesn't say dirty works. It doesn't say sinful works. It says dead works. That includes sinful things. It does include dirty things. But what about singing on the worship team with the spirit of showmanship? Dead work. What about preaching that you might be heard and seen and to show off? Dead work. What about um, baking the casserole for the pregnant mother and just uh, doing it with an air of arrogance? Dead works. What about giving an offering and being angry the whole time? Dead works. So part of our foundation is repenting from any dead work we find in our life. And so we want to make sure that our attitude is right with any of our good works, lest our good works become dead works. We understand that attitude makes all the difference in the world. If you're going to do it, do it with a smile on your face. Do it joyfully. Don't do it like a stick in the mud, like a, a, a grump on a log. Just do it joyfully, or don't do it at all till you can get your heart right. How about repentance from dead works and of faith toward God? So one of our foundational principles of the doctrine of Christ is a faith toward God. We covered this in a whole service a few weeks back. That means faith is active. It's actively pursuing after God. Philippians talks about, I press toward the mark of the high call. Faith is an active progression. It doesn't ever get satisfied. It stays content, but it's always gobbling up more territory. The Lord told Jacob, excuse me, Joshua at one point, you're old and well-stricken in years, but there's still more to do. There's more land to take. Remember Caleb, once they entered the promised land, he went to Jacob, excuse me, Joshua and said, give me my mountain. Moses said I could have that mountain. Give it to me. I'm 85 and I'm old, but I'm still in strength today to go out and to come in. I'm still able. Give me my mountain. Faith toward God doesn't retire. Faith toward God doesn't dial back. Faith toward God doesn't look like an American thinking about, I turn 65 and then I kick in a coast and coast to the finish line. A faith toward God is always tackling sickness. It's always tackling financial issues. It's always winning its neighbor. Faith toward God is always reading its Bible more. You never get to a place that says, I read my Bible once. I once read the whole Bible. Well, good for you. How many times have you read it since then? I read that verse once. All right, we'll read it again. Faith toward God is active. Faith is now. It's not yesterday. It's not 20 years ago. Faith is an active thing. So that's a principle of the doctrine of Christ. 
These doctrines are what put us into the spirit of Christ. They're what give us the mind of Christ. These principles are what mature us. So there's a lot that can be said. Read Hebrews chapter 11 to talk about faith toward God. Faith receives the promise. Faith gives a better sacrifice. Faith builds an ark. Faith receives strength to conceive seed. Uh, faith decides to be counted uh, among the children of Israel, not among Pharaoh's kids. Faith, faith, faith. It's active. If you're doing nothing, you got no faith. Faith isn't just what you think in your head or believe with your heart. Faith is what you do with your life. We can tell how much faith you have by how you live. And if you think you're called to some kind of full-time ministry like this, we can tell by the way you live whether you are or not. Because if you don't live like you're in the ministry already, you're not called. You can fabricate it. You can pretend it. We can do the funny dance that says, oh, yeah, you're called. But when you really are called, your faith will either get you in it, living like it, or you'll run from it because you're terrified. There's no neutral ground in, in ministry callings. Doctrine of baptism. That's the third principle. Notice the word is plural. We pointed this out. I was raised Southern Baptist. I was taught one baptism. Well, that means that doctrine contradicts Hebrews' doctrine. Who am I going to side with, Southern Baptist or the book of Hebrews? Now, they, they probably just didn't take time to teach me because there's a lot to be taught. But if you'll study the New Testament, you'll find there are five baptisms spoken of in the New Testament. That's why it's plural. Can you name all five? These are principles of the doctrine. If it's a foundational principle, it means you should have learned it in the beginning. So let's run through them real quick. John's baptism. Whew, this one doesn't apply to us. So you just have to know four. You have the most important baptism, which is baptism into the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We by one spirit are baptized into one body. That is to be submerged into the body of Christ. If you've not been baptized into the body of Christ, that's what Romans 6 is talking about. Romans 6, 1, 2, 3, and 4 has nothing to do with water, everything to do with the new birth. If you've not been water, or excuse me, baptized into the body of Christ, you're not saved. Because to be born again is to be made a new creature in Christ. To be baptized into his body and now made a member and a partaker. That's the most important one. Number two, water baptism, which we did this morning and baptized four folks. And that's only spoken of two places. Ah, you might get into the book of Acts and talk about Philippians chapter eight, excuse me, Acts chapter 8 with Philip, the evangelist, and then Acts 19. So maybe some more, but the Great Commission tells us to go into all the world and baptize people. Water baptism is important. It's the first sermon we ever preached. It demonstrates what's happened to us in the spirit realm. It's supernatural. Uh, in Africa, demons manifest when you baptize people in water. I had a professor, a friend of mine, my first geology professor, Dr. Pete Helton. He passed away this past summer uh, at 85, 80, maybe 90. Uh, even though he's a geologist, he was a great Baptist. He did missionary work all over India, China, and Africa. Lived in Zimbabwe for a long time. Taught there. And even though he was a Baptist, and actually went to First Baptist right over here, he'd say, Chris, actually... Uh, when I first started pastoring, I ran into him at Walmart, and I didn't realize he remembered me. And I said, Dr. Helton, and he, at Walmart. He said, Chris, I saw you on TV, because we had just started our telecast. I said, great, did you learn anything? No, I was just waiting for the weather to come on. <laughs> I, I was actually just impressed he remembered me, because I hadn't been to college in 15 or 16 years at that point. He said, no, you said some good things, but really, I was waiting for you to hurry up and go off so I could tell what the weather was going to do. You got to remember, we didn't have smartphones back then. Some of you young people are like, well, just check the app. There were no apps 14 years ago. There were no smartphones 14 years ago. The smartest phone you had was a BlackBerry, and that's not something you spread on toast, okay? Some of you young folks, I feel so sorry for you. So Dr. Helton told me, Pete, he said, Chris, he said, you need to go with me to Zimbabwe. I said, well, actually, I'm going there soon. He said, no, no. He said, we he said, we're Baptists. We baptize people. Demons come out of people in the water. He said, I see stuff there our church folks would freak out about. And I said, yes, sir, I've heard the story. She said, you got to come with me sometime. I said, Lord willing, I will. And so uh, water baptism is a serious thing. We don't take it lightly. If it'll drive demons out of born-again Christians, explain to me how you can be born again and still have a demon, but you do and water drives it out. Yeah, some of you Africans know what I'm talking about. You've seen it. Some of you missionaries know what I'm talking about. Third baptism. Baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire. 
Think about those scriptures. You shall be baptized not many days hence. That's what the Lord said, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Baptized in the Holy Ghost in power. And here's what the Baptists don't like. With the evidence speaking in other tongues. Well, that's just not for me. Well, I'm sorry, that violates Scripture because Acts 2, everybody spoke in tongues. Acts 8, everybody spoke in tongues. Acts 10, everybody spoke in tongues. Acts 19, everybody spoke in tongues. Paul said in Corinthians, I would that you all speak in tongues. So that's where a lot of folks stop. They're running on half of their baptisms. Thank God they're born again. Thank God they've been water baptized. But why not go a little further? Now, here's the fourth baptism that we're not excited about, the baptism of affliction. And that's what the Lord promised we'd have, to be baptized into affliction. So that's why the New Testament calls it the doctrine of baptisms. If you want to go run that study, we could spend probably six months teaching all of that and not exhaust it, but we're just reviewing because I have to finally get to eternal judgment, and we don't want it to take eternity to get there. <laughs> Fourth doctrine is the laying on of hands. This is a principal doctrine. I grew up in a lot of different denominations. I never saw the laying on of hands, ever, ever. Mm, maybe if there was an ordination service, I might have seen it as a religious rite. But I, I can't say I ever saw that, not in the Covenant Church, not in the Methodist Church, not in the Baptist Church. I never saw the laying on of hands until I got among charismatics. And then it's like something we do every service. But why wouldn't it be? Because we lay hands on folks. The Bible says we lay hands on the sick, they recover. The Bible says we lay hands and cast out devils. The Bible says we lay hands on people to bless them. We lay hands on them to ordain them. There's all sorts of reasons. There's seven New Testament reasons we lay hands on people. So what happens to a church that doesn't ascribe to that? How can you ever fulfill the gospel commandment without doing gospel commandments? So we hold to it which is pretty cool. And then we have the fifth doctrine, which is the resurrection of the dead. Praise God. That's the rapture. That's the second coming of Christ. We might disagree a little bit on the timeline of eschatology, whether you're a pre-trib rapturist, a mid-trib rapturist, a no-rapturist rapturist, or the second coming of Christ. Either way, the graves are going to come open. The dead in Christ shall rise first. That we can agree upon. When it happens compared to the rest, we don't know. I don't really care. We're not going to debate it this morning. My eschatology right now on that is kind of up in the air. For many years, I've been a pre-trib guy, and now I don't even really care. I'm just trying to get you to come back to Sunday night service at this point. Why debate on what hasn't happened yet when I know what is going to happen, which is church tonight, and some of you won't come back? Let's resurrect that first. But the resurrection of the dead, those that are dead in Christ, they rise first. This is a unique doctrine to Christianity. Every other religion says you die, your body stays dead. But our religion says we live forever in a body, a glorified body. It is unique to Judaism and is then passed over to us as Christians. Jesus Christ taught the resurrection of the dead and a new body. Daniel says they will arise from the dust of the earth. Job even said, I will see him again with my own eyes. Job's talking about the resurrection of the dead. It's a doctrine throughout the entire Old Testament. When it happens exactly, I don't really care this morning. It's just going to happen. And it's going to happen to those of us that are born again. That's the resurrection of the dead. And that brings us to the sixth and final, which is eternal judgment. That is a principal doctrine. This is a doctrine many churches and pastors are rejecting right now. The logic is fouled, and it goes something like this. If God is a God of love, how could a loving God send people to hell forever? Well, you forget that God is not just a God of love. He's a God of judgment. He's a God of righteousness. He's a God of anger. He's a God of hatred. Put that in your Sunday school little bag of doctrine and sort it out. God says, I hate he told Israel in the Minor Prophets, I hate your sacrifices, I hate your songs, I hate your worship. Stop it. He says, I hate the wicked, but I take no pleasure when they perish. He's not just a God of love, so let's not make him one-dimensional. He's not like some sugar daddy. He is the all-existent one, and he is all things. He is peace. He's a man of war. He's the healer. He is the smiter. He's the God of vengeance but he's the God of reconciliation. He's the God of wrath, but he's the God of restoration. He's all things. 
And he's a God of judgment. He is the righteous judge, so there is an eternal judgment. Before I go on, I want to show you this. Uh, let's go ahead and throw this up, Katie. I, I've been wanting to cover this briefly. As I was studying these passages and working on the book on botany, I've gotten into a lot of Jewish culture, of course, writing on the redemptive botany of the Bible. And one of the things I saw were parallels between the seven feasts of the Jews and the six doctrines of Christ. So let's run through these real quick. You got Passover. That's the first feast of the year. Passover, that's when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. We know that's Jesus Christ. He's our Passover lamb. Then you, it goes right into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover is one day. Unleavened bread begins the next day. It lasts for seven days. Unleavened bread. Then you have first fruits. And these are spaced out wonky on purpose. First fruits. And then Pentecost. So unleavened bread, you eat bread without leaven. So that means it's flat bread. And leaven represents sin. That's the festival. And it's to remember when you came out of Egypt so fast, you didn't have time to let your dough rise and you put it in your kneading troughs and you had to boogie out of Egypt. And then you go into first fruits, which is sometime later. First fruits is celebrated with the barley harvest because barley is planted and harvested first. And in the Jews tradition, they would go out to that first fruit of barley and they would cut a sheave of it that is enough and they tie a red ribbon around it to set it apart for God. That's first fruits. And then 50 days after Passover is Pentecost. That's where the word term comes from, Pentecost. Um, and it is a celebration of harvest because that's when the wheat harvest comes in. That's about a month or so after uh, first fruits. So what does that have to do? Passover is when we're born again. So we're just going to look at these parallels real quick. Just a cool little side note here before we get into eternal judgment. Passover is when we get born again. We receive Jesus Christ as our Passover lamb. And then that would begin unleavened bread. That's repentance from dead works. Unleavened bread is that first doctrine we see in Hebrews 6.1. Repentance from dead works. We remove all the leaven out of our life. And we do it with a good heart. We do good things. We do things joyfully. It's still bread. It's just bread without sin. It still works because we have to be careful to maintain good works. It's just works without attitude or, or politic in mixed in or political agenda or jockeying for position or showmanship or self-righteousness or, or the pursuit of perfectionism. It's, it still works because it has to be done, but it's done and it's acceptable to God. First fruits, that's the first festival where they do something toward God or give something toward God. And that parallels with faith toward God. It's the first thing you bring to God. It's a faith demonstrated toward God. So Passover, you keep. You just honor it. You eat the Passover meal and the bitter parts and the bitter herbs, and then you keep and you eat unleavened bread. And then first fruits is the first festival you bring something to God. And that is, of course, symbolic of faith toward God. Faith toward God. Because if we're not bringing something, doing something, or marching toward God, we're gonna, this day that we live in is going to wash us out into the world. You and I are living in the great falling away. And the thing that perhaps we didn't see coming is that the great falling away takes place every Sunday morning in church. The great falling away is led every Sunday morning by preachers. Preachers are teaching their congregations how to depart the faith. Teachers and preachers and pastors are teaching God's people how to sear their conscience, how to dumb down the standard, how to treat the house of God as common, how to dress down, how to dumb down, how to, how to just make this house, God's holy tabernacle, make it less respectable than the bowling alley. We went bowling a couple weekends ago for uh, Dammy's birthday party, and I noticed those that were serious bowlers, they have their bowling shirt on. They have a bowling glove. They have a bowling bag. They have their cute little 50s doo-wop bowling shoes. They even have bowling slacks. They have a special attire for the house of bowl. <laughs> and their heart is set on a special season. Our modern preachers don't even know how to do that for the house of God. We've believed the lie for so long. Come as you are. Stay as you are. 
Come as you are, sure, but you better be changing. You serve the living God. Just like he expects our babies to grow up, he expects us to grow up. Yeah, we're living in the great falling away. And if you don't keep your faith toward God, the world will rape it. It'll take your faith and begin to invest it somewhere else. It'll take your faith away from Jesus Christ and invest it into socialism, communism, Black Lives Matters, which is another God and idol. Social justice, which is not biblical justice. There's nothing biblical about social justice. It's a way to pimp people's time, money, heart, faith, and effort away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you can't export it to a prison in Uganda, it ain't worth exporting at all. You can't export social justice to a prison in Ecuador, but you can export the gospel. That's how you know it's an idol and a false gospel. If you've got to figure out how to regurgitate it, to cough it up in Nairobi or Shanghai, it ain't God. Amen. We're walking in the great falling way. You've got to make sure of faith toward God. Pentecost gets fun. It's both doctrine of baptisms and the laying on of hands. Because Pentecost was repeated over and over again, and Paul would lay hands on folks, and they'd receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. <coughs> Acts 19, actually Acts 8, Peter and John coming down, finding those disciples, and uh, he let, they laid hands on them that the Holy Ghost might come upon them, for they had not received the Holy Ghost yet, only they'd been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Peter and John had laid hands on them, they received the Holy Ghost, as did the others in the beginning. And Simon the sorcerer, seeing that through the laying on the hands of power, the Holy Ghost was given, he inquired, said, hey, can I give you money that I might have this power? And Peter said, hey, your heart's not right with God, so you ought to repent. That's the laying on of hands and the doctrine of baptisms. Pretty cool how it plays out like that. Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Trumpets, the Resurrection of the Dead. We did cover this one when we covered the Resurrection of the Dead. Remember Paul said, at the last trump, the trump of God shall blow, and the archangel will come with a trumpet. The Jews believe the Resurrection of the Dead will take place on the Feast of Trumpets, which we just, it just happened last month in September. And so we see a direct parallel there, the Feast of Trumpets and the resurrection of the dead. And there's no reason why it shouldn't happen. We probably won't know till we're caught up in it. I'm not saying we need to get real super Judeo-conscious. I may, though, if I do some more studying, I may at some point, one year, walk us through the seven festivals as a church just to do it. Not that we're going to wear yarmulkes and prayer shawls and blow the shafar. Our church is 38 years We've never blown a shofar, and I say shofar, so good. Why would we start now? <laughs> but in studying redemptive botany, I, I'm and writing this book, I'm really seeing just the brilliance of God and how He's arranged things. So my money, if I was a gambling guy, but I'm not a Baptist, so I'm not. My money. <laughs> As a joke, my dad told me the difference between a Methodist and a Baptist at the liquor store, the Methodist will acknowledge you. You can put any denomination in there, backslidden Pentecostal, seeker-friendly. All right. And there's some groans there. Whatever. Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is what the Jews call the Day of Eternal Judgment. It's a judgment for the nations of the world. The Day of Atonement is when Israel is saved and all their enemies are destroyed. It's what we call the Battle of Armageddon, but they call that the Day of Judgment. And so it parallels these six principles. Feast of Tabernacles, that's when God comes and he lives with us for a thousand years in the earth. And the Revelation says, and his habitation is with man. Pretty cool stuff. That's why we study the Bible. This is why you don't be like that ignoramus says, I read my Bible once, and what did you get out of it once? That's why we keep studying it. So let's come back now to eternal judgment, because that's our final doctrine. It's a principal doctrine. This is one of those things that these are the principles that help us as Christians mature. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. If we keep those things in front of us, they'll make sure that we never back off. So let's say a few things about uh, eternal judgment. This is not what we would call 
uh, current judgment or passive judgment. Uh, judgment falls upon people all the time right now. Even in the New Testament, judgment fell on Ananias and Sapphira in a church service. They just dropped dead. That's judgment. Sometimes when you rebel against God, your life begins to get increasingly difficult like the prodigals. That's judgment as well. Eternal judgment is not that. Eternal judgment is judgment that lasts for eternity, and there's no redemption out of it. We're not Mormons and we're not Catholics. We don't believe we can baptize people out of purgatory or out of hell into heaven. It doesn't work that way. The Bible does not teach that. Hebrews tells us it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Once you die, that's it. The question could be maybe justifiably asked, what about those that have been raised from the dead? Because certainly that happened in the Bible. It even happens today still. You just can't talk about it because folks don't believe in it. Well, they died and they weren't judged. No, but they will eventually die and stay dead. Because even Lazarus raised from the dead, he at some point died and stayed dead. What about uh, uh, Jairus' daughter raised from the dead? Well, she died, came back to life, and one day later we know she died and stayed dead. Same with the boy who was raised from the dead in the funeral. He died, the Lord raised him from the dead. He lived, grew up, got old, died, stayed dead. Whenever you die and stay dead, then's the judgment. Fair enough? I'm picking on Baptists this morning. I don't know why. Maybe my mom and dad are watching. Uh, 19 years ago, I was in Natchez, Mississippi, uh, drilling on a FHWA job, uh, Federal Highways Administration. I was overseeing a drilling project for the end of the Natchez Trace Parkway. It terminates in Natchez Trace. It's a historic parkway. And I was attending an all-black Pentecostal church. I was the only white guy there. Wonderful uh, church, wonderful move of the Holy Ghost while I was there. They had me preach once, and then every service they used me to lay hands on people. But one day, uh, I was there for three weeks in Natchez, Mississippi. I decided to do, well, I did a lot of sightseeing while I was there because it's a very historic town. But I went to this antebellum mansion called Nuts Folly. And it's the largest octagonal-shaped house in America. And you can pull it up, Nut, N-U-T-T, Dr. Nut. His folly, F-O-L-L-Y, because he never finished it. Very cool house. It was a house built on an octagon. It was a giant tower, and it was like a... a entry-level basement kind of mansion. And he designed it such that at the very top of the tower, there were mirrors that he could adjust and they would cause light to go through all the floors and illuminate all the floors because this is antebellum, which means pre-Civil War, even all the way down to the basement. So I'm going to go tour Nuts Folly, the largest octagonal shaped house in America. Never finished it. He died. Civil War hurt them. But on my way in to see it, I have to go through the security entry point. This is 2002. And there's this old security guard. Now, he's not going to stop anybody. He is worse than Barney Five. He doesn't even have a gun, much less a bullet in his front pocket. But his name was Rollo William Boyd. And uh, he said, uh, I told him who I was coming to see this house. He said, well, you know what? It's not open yet. So you might as well stay here and talk to me. So the security guard makes me stop. So we get to talk and he finds out where I'm from. So I decide to witness to him. Why not? He's old. He's old as dirt. He's like 60. No, I'm just... I'm just I, he was 85 years old. And I said, Mr. Rollo, are you a Christian? And his face lit up. He said, I certainly am. Let me tell you my born-again story. And I thought, here we go. It's going to be... I got baptized in the Baptist church, Baptist Sunday school. And I didn't know what to expect. He said, I got saved 20 years ago after I died and went to hell. And I thought, well, this isn't your typical testimony time, please. <laughs> he said, I was 65 years old. I'm 85 now. He kept telling me that. He said, he said, I got all my teeth in my head. He kept telling me his teeth. These are all real teeth. I got cavities, but they're all real teeth. He said, and I do weights every morning. He kept telling me that too. He was a healthy 85-year-old. And he said, uh, 65 years ago, uh, he said, I began to have heart issues, heart palpitations. And I called my childhood friend, who is my doctor. He named his name. I don't remember his name. It's been 20 years ago. He said, Rollo, sounds like you're having a heart attack. You better come and get in there. Come in here. We got to check you out. He said, so I get in there and I die and I left my body and I hear the doctor say, we're losing them. We're losing them. And he said, I start going down, down, down. He said, and I get to the gates of hell. He said, and the gates are open and I can see down the corridor of hell and I hear screams of torment. And he said, and I hear him screaming, somebody bring us something to drink. We're dying of thirst. Somebody bring us something to eat. We're dying of starvation. 
And he said, I, I'm terrified because I know if I go in those gates, I'm never coming out. If I walk through that threshold, those gates will shut and I will never come out. And he said, and then I begin to hear a voice say, We're getting, we got him, we got him back. He said, I stuck back up. I'm back in my body again. And he said, oh, we're losing them. And, and, and I think, please, no, no, don't lose me. Don't lose me because I can't go back down there. He said, so I went back down there a second time and I'm standing at the portal of hell again. It's dark. He said, it's like you think it would be flames flickering and I can hear these screams. Somebody bring us some water. We're dying of thirst. Somebody bring us something to eat. We're dying of starvation. And he said, I can hear screams. I can't see them. And he said, I think God had mercy because I'd probably see my family. Because he said, we weren't Christians. And he said, and they're, they're crying out somebody. He said, just the torment, terrifying. And then all of a sudden, I hear a voice that shook hell that said, the only way you'll miss this place is by calling on the name of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. And then he said, all of a sudden, he said, I start to hear the voice. We got, we're getting him back. We're getting him back. And he says, and I came back up out of hell. And I got into my body again. He said, next thing I know, I'm in a recovery room. And he said, I'm laying there. And I, he said, I'm thinking, was that real? Did that really happen? Did I just go to hell twice? And he said, and then that same voice came to me again and said, I told you the only way you'll miss that place is by calling on the name of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. And he said, and when that voice spoke to me, all my charts started going boop, 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 boop. And he said, the nurses came crashing in there and they said, are you okay, Mr. Boyd? And he said, I had to lie to him and say, yeah, yeah. He said, I wasn't going to tell him. I just went to hell twice and I heard God talk to me because then they think I was crazy. <laughs> and, I, and so now I'm like, I'm hanging out the end of my truck, just gripped by this old man. I was only 25 at the time. He's just telling me this story. And, uh, and I said, and what'd you do, Mr. Boyd? He said, I called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ <laughs> for the remission of my sins. He was not ashamed of his born-again story at all. See, that's eternal judgment. You go in and you don't come back. But see, that I got, it bugged me because he said, I said, Lord, I've never heard about that starvation and hell thing. I can kind of get water, you know, rivers of living water. And the Lord dealt with me. He said, they never had the bread of life. Starvation, because you never tasted of the bread of life. That man, not even church, was more biblical than he realized in his experience. That's how you judge these experiences. Do they stack up to the word? And that one certainly did. Mr. Boyd, I'm sure, is in heaven now because he was 85 then, but in very good shape. Eternal judgment is eternal. It's once and for all. My pastor likes to point out, hell lasts as long as heaven. It's forever. And it is real. Jesus Christ talked about hell more than anybody. And he didn't talk about it metaphysically or metaphorically. It's a real place. He calls it both Gehenna and Hades in his language. And it's a place where the damned go and they have a worm that does not cease to bore holes through them. The Bible teaches us in Daniel that also the resurrected damned have a body for all eternity as well. That's different. But the Bible teaches us that. It's not just the righteous that get a glorified body. The, the dead at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, they're resurrected too. What do you resurrect? You have to resurrect something with the body. And they're sent to eternal damnation in a glorified body, if you can call it that, where their worm is eternal with them. What is that worm? I don't know. It's in the Bible. The Bible speaks about that worm. I taught a sermon a couple years ago called The Worm of Regret. Part of my little doctrine on that says maybe it's you in hell forever regretting all the chances you had to be born again. And that worm just torments you for eternal damnation. It's eternal judgment. We're living in a day where pastors are teaching their churches there's no hell. We're living in a day where folks that used to believe like us, Pentecostals, word of faith, they're now denouncing hell because of grace. Hell does not, the existence of hell does not negate the existence of grace. It would be insane to think one negates the other when both are clearly in the scripture. It's like saying the existence of God negates the existence of an enemy. That's stupid. Or the, neg the existence of hot negates the existence of cold. No, they can both exist. And we know that hell is for real. In this life, we are always being judged despite what liberal theologians teach. And that's why Corinthians 11 says that we ought to judge ourselves. If we would judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. We, we can avoid eternal judgment by constantly judging ourselves and asking the Lord, show me where I'm wrong. Lord, did I please you today? 
Lord, what would you have me read my, in my Bible tomorrow? Lord, were you pleased with how I handled class today? Were you pleased with how I handled my children today? Lord, judge me. I believe in paying judgment on installment plans a little bit every day and not waiting and having calamity. Lots of times calamity comes because we fail to judge ourselves a little bit at a time. And remember, sin has a paycheck. I'd rather receive the payment 10 cents at a time than 20 grand and it destroy my life. Judge me today, Lord, so I don't get off track tomorrow. Let me reset my life and reset my heart a little every day. Let me go to bed saying, Lord, are you pleased with me today? What do I need to repent of? Not in fear, just checking up. I don't fearfully do it. I'm not scared. Lord, is it, can we, let's review my day, Lord. Are you okay with how I handled service? Are you okay with how I handled my wife? Did I say anything stupid while our guest was here that I need to call and repent? That way you're constantly recalibrating. When I, when I worked in geology, we used a lot of different equipment to do our measurements and calculations and radiation and compressive strength and whatever. All of that had to constantly be recalibrated. And if some of it required recalibration every six months, some of it every two years, if you went longer than the recommended calibration, it could be way off. And if you're testing like concrete cubes and grout cubes and it's an airport runway, you don't want that to be wrong lest the 747 crashes and it's your fault. You and I, our life doesn't need to be recalibrated every six months. It ought to be recalibrated probably every 60 minutes. Lord, I love you. You just tag in with the Lord. I don't mean to be flippant with that, but you just touch base. Lord, are we okay? Lord, I'm about to go in for this next interview or I'm about to go to this next class and I don't like this professor. I don't like my, my lab partners. Help me, Lord. That's recalibrating every 60 minutes. It's a good way to avoid eternal judgment. Uh, active judgment. There's an active judgment and there's a passive judgment, and that still is not eternal judgment. Uh, the Bible speaks to us of a doctrine of hedges, hedges of protection. Remember when Satan came to God in Job chapters 1 and 2, he says, look, Lord, you've put a hedge of protection around Job, and I can't get through it. Isn't that interesting? Job had a hedge of protection. He didn't maybe know about it, but Satan could see it. And the Lord had to show jo uh, Satan that he's in your hand now. Job chapter 1 and 2, study it. We have a big curriculum we wrote on that that you can get off of our pod school. That's still not eternal judgment. We want to walk with God today so that even our temporal judgment is not that bad. And you can do it if you'll walk with God. There's nothing that says your life can't go from glory to glory, from increase to increase, from peace to peace. Some of you, you're my sheep, and your life is just one calamitous splat after another. You just, you're always a day late and a dollar short. You take two steps forward and two and a half backwards. You're striving for Christ and you're ending up in the pig pen. And it would be because you don't judge yourself as you should and then consistently get up and march on. At some point, it's got to be exhausting. It's not God's word that fails. It's you. Well, I tried that. You don't try it. You live it. You just get up and do. You get up and do. You get up and do. Well, I tried that God thing for a couple months. Uh, and then you failed because we don't try this thing. We are this thing. We live it. Right? It doesn't work. Yeah, it does. You just don't work it. You won't submit. You won't be disciplined. You won't be discipled. Yeah. Like we said, if we could reset all of our lives today like the government's trying to do around the world, if we could reset all of our lives spiritually, financially, maritally, by the end of the next week, We'd, always, we'd already have a spectrum of success based on your heart for God and your heart for laziness, your heart for diligence and your heart for victim mindset. We could reset everything, money, wealth, peace, marital success, parenting, and by the end of the week, we'd be right back into our demographic spectrum because it's not about whether the word does or doesn't work. It depends on how you walk with God. We receive the fruit of our labor. We receive the end of our heart. And our life is a manifestation of what's still in our heart. Let's look at some verses on eternal judgment. Let's go to Acts 24. Give you some scriptures with our time that's left. I can't just harp and preach on this, but Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24 is Paul speaking before the governor Felix and his wife Drusilla. Fun historical note. At this point, after Felix and Drusilla, they disappear from the historical record. But we do know Drusilla and their son died at Pompeii. 
when Mount Vesuvius went off. That took place about 30 years after this, about 20 years after this. Mount Vesuvius, I think, was 70 AD or so, 72 AD. Drusilla was there. She was killed at Pompeii. But here she makes a Bible appearance. And Paul preaches to them, verse 25. And Paul reads, actually, verse 24. And after certain days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. So listen to the faith that is in Christ. And as he reasoned, that means to preach and dispute. That's what we do. We have to argue with our critics while we preach. I hear your questions and doubts and I answer them. I hear your idols and I destroy them. Why do you think I thump woke so much? Because it's a demon idol that entrenches in the hearts of lots of ignorant believers. Woke and BLM and social justice do not manifest the spirit of Christ. Therefore, I renounce it as antichrist. Doth this offend thee? Remove the idol and see clearly. It's a demon. It's a demon. Why do you flirt with it? It's a demon and it's an idol. And you're more fired up about it than you are Jesus Christ in winning the lost. I see color. I just don't worship it like you do. Amen. He reasoned of righteousness. Here's the three parts of the gospel. Righteousness. That's being born again, being made the righteousness of God in Christ. Temperance. That's self-control. This was a hard sermon to hit them with because they are Greeks. They're Romans. They are slobs. They are gluttons. They are full of hedonism. You know, the Roman uh, feasts, they would eat and eat and eat, and they had bowls they would puke into to keep eating some more. This was common Roman practice. Study it. It's Roman culture. In their governor and, and their wealthy uh, uh, festivals and orgies, they would eat and eat and eat, and then they'd have these purging bowls. So that's why he preaches on self-control. And judgment to come. He preached this, and it says, and Felix trembled. Whatever he preached, the fullness, those are just the three points. That could have been three hours. Could have been seven hours. For whatever reason, Felix didn't shut him up. But when he was done and he wraps up with eternal judgment, judgment to come, it says, and Felix trembled. Sermons ought to make you tremble, especially when you're dirty. You ought to be convicted. Joel Osteen has ruined the expectation of what church should be. Joel Osteen might make heaven, but most of his followers will not. Because they expect to be made to feel like a million bucks every time they come to church. And when a preacher like me loves you enough to tell you the truth, you think it's hard and unloving, but you're the clueless one. Because an open rebuke is better than a secret love. Paul made a governor tremble when Paul knows if I upset him, I may go to prison for longer. We answer to God, not pagan governors with self-control issues. So you see that. He said, go your way for this time. When I have convenient season, I will call for thee. Uh, but uh, he was left in prison for two years and forgot. And then we find out that Priscilla died in Pompeii. She may have gone to hell. Here was her opportunity to be born again and get things right. Look at Acts 10. Let's come back there. Acts 10, 42. Let's look at just a few verses on the judgment that is to come. Acts 10, 42, this is Peter preaching. He commanded us to preach unto the people, not to encourage them constantly, and to testify that it is he, God, which was ordained to be God, uh, ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead. To him gave all the prophets witness. Notice that Jesus Christ is ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead, the living and the cursed. Jesus Christ will judge all of us. Go to Romans chapter 14. We're just going to quickly turn to a couple verses because of time's sake. Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, verse 10. Actually, verse 9. Romans 14, 9. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be bo uh, Lord both of the dead and the living. Kind of echoes Acts 10, 42 there. But why dost thou judge, or we would say condemn, make no account, your brother? Let, listen, we are commanded to judge. We, we judge a righteous judgment. If we're going to remove the splinter in our own eye, we must first judge it, or the two-by-four. And then it says once we've removed the two-by-four, we can remove the splinter. All that's judgment. First uh, Corinthians 2 tells us that he that's spiritual judges all things. So the King James says judge here. The Greek is to condemn or set at naught, to, to render us useless and beyond hope. We don't do that. Nobody's beyond hope. People can be dirty, and we can call them dirty because you know what? 
You're dirty. You're sinful. You know why we can call you sinful? Because you're sinful. You know, boy, you won first place. You're a winner. You know why we can call you a winner? Because you're a winner. That's all judgment. But we don't have permission to set anybody at naught and say you're hopeless, worthless, and good for nothing. So if your parents did that to you growing up, just almost like Spike from that doggy car- cartoon. Ah, shut up. <laughs> Tell your parents in your heart, you don't know what you're talking about. You just did that because that's what your daddy told you. It stops with me. Why do you set your brother at naught? That's what he says. Or why dost thou set thy brother at naught? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Notice it isn't the hugging seat of Jesus' loves and kisses. We all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. You're not responsible for mama. You're not responsible for your uncle. You're not responsible for your nephew. You're responsible for your marriage and your kids until they leave. If they live in your home, they're under your authority and your domain. I don't care if they're 25 years old. If they're in your home, they live by your rules. If not, they can go live under a bridge. We have a lot of them around here. We have a lot of great homeless ministries. They can go participate in those outreaches. But if they won't submit to your leadership, kick them out. Otherwise, God will judge you for your poor stewardship of dominion. If I'm a boss and my employees don't submit, I fire them. Otherwise, God judges me for my waste of authority and resources. And children, prodigals especially, can be the greatest waste of your time and your money and your prayers. And at some point, you've got to stop spitting in the face of Jesus and obey his judgment because you're going to give an account for yourself. Amen. All right. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Let's go there. 2 Corinthians 5.10. A lot of verses here. All of them we could stop and teach on for a little bit longer. We all give an account for ourselves. I'm responsible for this church. But even as a pastor, if you don't submit, I kick you out. And by submit, I mean, you just, just follow the rules. I often make the point, bars and clubs have bouncers because even they will only tolerate so much sin and then they will bounce you and they don't give you your cover charge back and they don't send you your half drunk beer with you. You get bounced and they have that right to do that. If a bar can bounce an unruly drunk, why can't you bounce your prodigal? Why is the bar more righteous than a spirit-filled parent? Why is a bar, why is a bar more discerning about law and order and righteousness? Why will the bar tolerate less lawlessness than spirit-filled parents? Why is a bar less antichrist than some spirit-filled homes? Shall I drive it a little further? I mean, you getting the point? Why will the bartender and the bouncer stand up in judgment against some Christians? I say, Lord, I may be going to hell, but that guy's stupid. <laughs> I'd have bounced my daughter. I'd have bounced my son. I bounce drunks all the time. I, send me to hell, but he better be coming with me. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must... All appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Do you see this? We're going to appear. We're going to appear. We're going to appear. That everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. See, this isn't a good time. This is a terrifying time. We all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and we will give an account for everything we do in our body, every decision, every dollar we spend, every piece of food we eat, every movie we see, every song we listen to, every word we speak. Jesus Christ says we'll give an account for every idle word. This day is coming upon us, and when it's real to you, as it is in the Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, the principal doctrine, it's set before us to pull slack out of our life. If eternity is real to you, you'll live differently. The heretics on TBN tell us there is no hell. Therefore, live how you want to. Well, they're all going to hell themselves. Not everybody on TBN, just like a big bulk of their viewers. Or not viewers, but their content producers. There's a hell. 
There's an eternal judgment coming. There's a judgment seat of Christ coming for the church, and we're going to answer for everything. Should we not have something to answer to God for in the positive, in the affirmative, to be able to say, Lord, I did everything you told me. I cut everything out of my life you asked of me. I gave every dollar you commanded me to. I witnessed to every person you nudged me to witness to. I came to prayer. Lord, I, I got up and interceded every time I felt like you were leading me to. Or will you say, I lived the way I wanted to. And you know, mama was my reason for not doing better because you know it was hard growing up. You know, I just wasn't raised right. I wasn't held enough. I, I wet myself twice when I was 12. Didn't get the Buck Rogers ray gun when I was 12. You know, Lord, I have all these excuses and they will exempt me from the standard of God's word even though I was born again spirit-filled and had a Bible. It won't answer. It won't stand. It won't last. Eternal judgment should terrify us. We're born again. We're going to heaven. But will we have anything to take with us into heaven? That's the question. Write this verse down. Joel 3, 2. Just write it down. This verse talks about the judgment of the nations. God's going to judge the nations. He already is, but it's going to be an eternal judgment. And Joel 3, 2 is answered again in Matthew 25, 31 through 40. The parable of the sheep and the goats is actually a reference to the separation of the nations. Now, we use sheep and goats to talk about Christians, but in context, it's talking about the nations. And it is the Lord addressing Joel's prophecy. He'll set the nations that were for him on one side and the nations that were against him on another. That's Matthew 25, 31 through 40. So you see an eternal judgment even for nations. Some nations will be blotted out and they'll never exist again. Revelation chapter 20. And here's where we're going to wrap up. Revelation chapter 20. We don't have time to look at everything the Lord Jesus said about hell, but all you have to do is do a Bible search on hell and focus on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you can see Jesus Christ had a better doctrine on hell than most of his preachers do today. There is a hell. It is eternal. Right now, when people die, they go to a place called Sheol in the Hebrew. The Greek calls it Hades. And it is spoken of in both languages as an actual physical location. It is the abode of the dead and the damned. Uh, the Lord also called it Gehenna, which is the Valley of Hinnom, which was a place where they burned trash outside the wall of Jerusalem. And it had a continual uh, burning fire. They believe it was fed by the methane of the decomposition. It's also where they would sacrifice their babies to Molech. That was done in the Valley of Hinnom. Gehenna. Gehenna fire. That's the trash heap. And that's where the babies cried as their mothers uh, burned them alive in the ovens of Molech. I'm trying to decide if I want to kick Black Lives Matters again. I will agree with Black Lives Matters when African Americans stop being the number one murderer of African Americans at 1,400 abortions a day. I am tired of being told as a white man that I'm racist by birth and that we need to overhaul everything we look at when the black culture in America will not evaluate its own culture and decide it is also grotesquely broken and perverted when 88% of all blacks in America are born illegitimate, and that's of the 40% that weren't aborted. You think I'm the problem? You think this melanin, this melanin and, and my skin pigment's the problem? Your culture is your cancer. When Gruden is fired for some racial comments, but everybody singing at the Super Bowl this winter, every hip-hop rapper says everything that Gruden said in his emails... That's a little bit of football culture right there unfolding right now. Gruden, a white guy, fired because his emails had some misogynistic, homophobic, racist things, like every hip-hop song that's going to be sung by the rappers at this year's Super Bowl. Eminem, Jay-Z, all these other guys. Oh, and all the football players that have like 21 domestic assault charges. So they get to keep playing for $20 million a year but Gruden has 10-year-old emails that were inflammatory and they're going to fire him. I just want, I want parity. I want equality. Equality of standard. Equality of excellence. Not hypocrisy in the name of disparity. I, sometimes when I address this, I feel like the adult beating up on children because that's how stupid their arguments are. 
It's like playing basketball with your four-year-old nephew. I'm just going to stuff you in the face. <laughs> just block you. <laughs> Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. That's the God we serve. God, the Lord Jesus says, no man has seen God. No man can see God and live. Yeah, because when a planet sees God, it melts away. What chance do you and I stand? Up until now, everybody that dies goes to Hades or Sheol, same place. This begins to talk about the second death and eternal damnation. Right now, people are not in eternal damnation. They're just in torments. That's Luke chapter 15, Lazarus and the rich man. They're in torments in hell, the abode of the dead. What's coming for them is the second death, the lake of fire. I saw him, and he had a great white throne, and him that sat upon it, whose face, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great. Notice that even in hell, there's no equality. Pastor Vaughn would say this is not talking about giants and midgets. <laughs> but there'll be giants and midgets in hell, just like there'll be giants and midgets in heaven. They stood before God, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books. I would ask us this morning, what is God writing about your life? What does he have to say about your life? What is he writing down? Is there stuff in there you wish to God you could erase? And if so, don't repeat it tomorrow. It's pretty simple. Quit writing the same thing. Just be different. Just be changed. Just stop. Just love. Just repent. We all got stuff. We wish we could sneak to heaven and get that Holy Ghost white out and just, and just tear out whole pages, whole years. Put that on the altar, please. <laughs> <coughs> what's being written about our life? We were judged, they were judged out of the things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell. Notice these are two places. Hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. This is eternal judgment. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And then it's insinuated into the second death. It's appointed a man once to die. And then is judgment. And after this death, you either go to heaven or you await the second death. And that's eternal separation from God. There are no do-overs, no mulligans. Nobody can be baptized in a giant marble calf-covered trough in Mormon Tabernacle in Salt Lake City to get you out of hell. That's why the Mormons own all the uh, 23andMe and all the uh, genealogy things. Ancestral worship, ancestry.com, that's Mormons, because they want to baptize everybody out of hell into heaven. Sorry, dunking people in place of somebody else in a giant, beautiful, uh, marble, golden calf-covered trough doesn't get you out of hell. You only get one shot at it. It's this life. You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. And faith toward God and repentance from dead works. And you must endure to the end. I'm not for salvation by works. And I'm not once saved, always saved. And I'm not, you're going to sin and die and go to hell. I'm talking about you give your life to Christ and you don't take it back. I'm all about you serve Jesus Christ and you endure to the end because we are watching the great falling away. And there is an eternal judgment coming for people. I was born again a Baptist at the age of seven, and it hasn't gone away yet. I backslid for a couple years, rededicated at 18, and I haven't quit yet. Some of you waffle in between services. This is no time to waffle. Amen. Some of you, you rededicate every service. What's wrong with you? Rededicate and then stick to it. Get away from people that cause you to have to rededicate again and again and again. Because one of these times, your heart's going to hook that thing and stick with it. We have an eternal judgment coming, and it lasts forever. And we don't want to see anybody go to that lake of fire. We want to see everybody endure to the end. The Bible promises us those that endure to the end shall be saved. 
We endure. We believe in the perseverance of the saints. It's real simple. Just run with Christians. Get perversion out of your life. Quit watching smut. Quit running with dirty people. Get rid of social media. Tonight I'll show you a new study that came out. It says the fifth of 50 detrimental effects of social media. 50. Actually, it's 47. I think the article says nearly, the nearly 50 research-proven detrimental effects of social media. The other article I have is the explosion of ticks and Tourette's in TikTokers. I thought, this is made up, and I started reading the article. An explosion in young girls experiencing Tourette's, and the one thing they all have in common is they're addicted to TikTok. One, la- one, one clinic says, we used to see one girl a month with Tourette's or ticks. Now we're seeing 100 plus. You think that's maybe a spirit? And I'm just the legalistic one that thinks your kid isn't mature enough to have a smartphone. I've been right for almost 10 years on this thing, and some of you, you still disrespect me. All right. But that's the now, eternal judgment. Let's bow our heads.